0: I was reflecting as we were singing various hymns today and using terms like redeemer, the debt we owe, or as Margie just saying, being set free. If you really think about it, everything we do in worship having to do with hymns and scripture has to do with grace. And if we don't understand grace, salvation by faith alone, then most of worship really is a foreign language to us. That's what makes today's text so critical, that we understand just exactly why Christianity is unique from all other religions. And what we mean when we say Jesus is our savior. That sounds really so basic, and yet it's an issue of a continuing confusion in the church, and I'll tell you why. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we're so grateful for the Bible And the discipline of books like Acts that takes us into the basic cornerstones of what we believe as Christians. We pray this morning that your spirit will so work in our hearts that we'll become articulate in what we believe and why we believe it about our Lord and Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. Dr. Laura Schlesinger hosts a radio talk show. She has an audience, they say, of some 20 million listeners. Maybe you have heard her. Consistently, she says good things. She tells people to restrict sex to marriage, to stop allowing feelings to dictate behavior, don't have children unless you want to parent them, and don't seek personal happiness as the highest goal in life, and on and on. Good counsel. However, there is one thing lacking in her message as I listen to her and think about it, and that is she doesn't tell people where to find the power to follow her good counsel. Where to find the power to make good choices? Of course we agree with her, but we can't do it. And this fact raises two questions with which Christians, at least almost all of us, struggle. First, how do we control behavior we know is wrong, and yet we do it anyway? And then, how do we cope with the guilt resulting from that inconsistency in our lives? One of the continuing diseases, particularly among evangelical Christians, is this thing called guilt. Guilt has many symptoms. It's believing when something bad happens to us that God is punishing us for our sins. Or it's compulsive striving to win God's approval, much like we seek to win parental approval by meticulously seeking to obey his laws. Or it can be seen through low self-esteem. We come to church, we compare ourselves with other Christians here, and we feel we're at the bottom of the totem pole. Or it can take just the opposite, and we become very judgmental of other people who fail, and very unmerciful when they make mistakes. The truth is, guilt is real, it's not fiction. We, as Christians, consistently disobey God's laws, even though we know better. It's how we cope with that guilt resulting from disobedience that has everything to do with whether or not we find the abundant life, the joy, and whether we become infectious to those outside looking at us as Christians. And this, of course, leads us to our text. Because we find this issue is not new. It's as old as the early church, the Council of Jerusalem, met to deal with this problem of Gentiles, that's you and me, coming into the church... And what was a Gentile? A Gentile was a believer at the time whose lifestyle didn't conform to God's law as reflected in the Old Testament. It said there were some believers, these were Christians, who were of the Pharisee party, and they came demanding that these new Gentile converts become circumcised and obey the law of Moses, which is a way of saying they need to become Jews in order to become Christians in terms of their behavior. Well, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the high court rejected their demand, and they opened up their arms and welcomed Gentiles, you and me, into the church. Now, this decision opened the church family to the whole world, one of the most important decisions in the New Testament, because it stated, regardless of race and culture and gender, and above all, regardless of one's moral pedigree, we are welcome in Christ's church. Now, we kind of take that for granted. That was a revolutionary revelation at that time. I want us to consider the impact of this historical verdict upon us today as we struggle with guilt, or more basic, as we struggle with the question, what makes us righteous in God's sight? First, the verdict of the Council of Jerusalem frees us, thank God, from making our, quote, moral pedigree the measure of our worth in God's sight. Legalistic believers, and and I emphasize again, these people were Christians who believed this. They demanded Gentiles, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And they believed that because they hadn't yet understood grace and their demand created a problem. And and, and here, I think it's fascinating. The problem was Gentiles were already Christians. They had already been saved. They had received the Holy Spirit without submission to Old Testament law. As our text states, God who knows the heart showed that he accepted the Gentiles by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. You know, the whole Reformation happened on the issue of salvation by faith versus salvation by works of one kind or another. We need to understand that. By faith is defined further in Romans when Paul states the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness by works have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it, why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. So what's that mean? This is where it plugs into you. Since earliest days, there's always been two groups in the church. I was raised in the first group in my early years. This group pursues a relationship with God as if it were a contract. We keep God's law and God blesses us with salvation. And life for this group is obsessed with do's and don'ts, preoccupation with behavior, their own, and the behavior of everybody else in the church. Worship and sermons is kind of geared to one thing we have to do after another, another demand, another law, another thing by which we can become good in God's sight. And the entire effort is trying to please God and make ourselves acceptable in God's sight. Eugene Peterson comments on those who relate to God by keeping the rules. Moralism is death on spirituality. Moralism puts all the emphasis on performance rather than faith. I need to tell you, a contract relationship with God according to Scripture simply doesn't work. Why? God keeps his end of the bargain. We cannot keep ours. We can will what is right, but we can't do it. That's the facts of life. And this is why I consider Dr. Laura Schlesinger's advice good, but very frustrating. No one has the inner power to consistently make the choices she advocates, even if we desire to do it. And that's what's wrong with legalistic religion. And you know, that's why Jesus came. That's why we call him Redeemer and Savior. He came to save us because we are guilty. We do sin. We can't measure up to God's standards. And the only cure for that disease of guilt is faith in what Jesus did for us because we couldn't do it ourselves. Now, that's the first group. A second group, in which I find myself happily, or I wouldn't be in the ministry today, in all honesty, are those believers who are fully aware our relationship with God cannot be dependent upon good behavior. Personally, After years of preaching and teaching and being a Christian, I'm still terribly disappointed with my performance as a disciple. With my inability to practice what I preach, unless you do it, you can't imagine the agony of giving a sermon like I'm giving today and then not being able to live the very things you're telling your people to live. My only option for sanity, because I still foul up all the time and so do you, is that I can daily draw from the well of God's grace by constantly confessing and turning from my sins and receiving forgiveness again and again and again. You know, this is sort of a humiliating process, but you know, I've concluded this is what it means to live by faith in Christ alone. That's what Christianity is all about. That's the spiritual journey, starting again, over and over again. What this text tells us, the only way you and I can relate to a holy God and hope to spend eternity with him is through faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Our confidence in grace, rather than in our performance that's able to please God, is the divine cure for this disease of very real guilt. It's the only thing that really works. And so the issue facing the early church And and really, every believer today, this is a question you have to answer if you want to have good theology and find the joy of Christianity. Is Jesus enough to make me fully acceptable in God's sight? Or is it Jesus plus something more, like... Avoiding evils of the world by rigidly following a code of do's and don'ts. Do I need to do that plus Jesus? Or, above all, like in the early church, adopting a posture of being the spiritually elite, the Pharisees, who constantly cast stones at the morally inferior. The good news of the gospel, and happily the verdict of the council of Jerusalem was, Jesus is enough. And this is the bedrock upon which our church, this church, rests, Grace is enough to add any precondition for becoming a Christian and continuing as a Christian beyond the act of faith in Jesus alone is to cheapen what our Lord did on the cross for us. We need to understand that. Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the council wisely understood Christianity is not a religion of rules, performance. It's a relationship with Jesus. You know, if there's anything I wish I could communicate to us today so you could tell others, is what is the difference between Christianity and other religions? We get that all of the time. Or what's the difference sometimes between an evangelical Christian and, and let's say, one who's more liberal? Well, the only difference between us is, for us, it isn't, our religion is not an effort on our part to do good, to reach up to God, to win His approval. Ours is a relationship with the God who reached down to us in Jesus and he did everything necessary so we could come home and be with him. We don't have to do anything but receive the gift. It's a relationship with Jesus. It's not a performance thing. And when we understand that, we've identified what makes us unique from all other religions in the world. Think about that this week. You see, knowing we're saved by faith alone, without works, frees us from living with the fear of losing our salvation because we dip into the well of God's grace too often. I can remember as a teenager being told by pastors, if I went to movies on Sunday and if I went to dances and if I got involved with alcohol, and, and, and obviously if you get involved with sex, you're, you're gonna lose your salvation. And, and a, a 17 year old was pretty impressed with that. And so I lived in fear. And then you begin wondering if on the day of judgment, will I get in? A Christian should never have to ask that question any more than an adopted child has to start worrying about once they're in the family, will they get unadopted? One of the most horrible things that could ever happen since we've adopted two is to make our love for our adopted children conditional. Once they're part of the family, there's nothing they can do that will ever get them unborn out of the family. That's how it is with us in Jesus Christ. Grace is that perfect love of God that casts out fear of losing what He's given us. As Peter states in our text, we believe it's through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we're saved, just as the Gentiles are. You know, some believers struggle with this good news for a lot of reasons. Uh, Every time I preach on grace and say grace is sufficient, some say, well, you know, that doesn't compute. It's too easy, it's too cheap. It's not fair that other believers whose uniforms are far dirtier than mine receive the same benefits. And I simply want to tell you, unconditional love is always difficult to understand, it's difficult to accept, and it's difficult to give. But actually, this text is simply another drama of the prodigal son, which is one of the most beautiful stories in my book, as far as one that Jesus ever told. You remember the legalistic elder brother, the Pharisee, He couldn't believe the father would still welcome home and throw a party for this reprobate son who had squandered his life. It wasn't fair. He had followed the rules. He was clean. And this brother, he he called it the father's son, had come home and now there was a party. And as Oswald Chambers writes, the marvel of the redemptive reality of God is that the worst and the vilest can never get to the bottom of God's love we ought to just let that sink in. As far as we go down, God's love goes further down. Praise the Lord. But now I want to address the question always raised. Does this teaching just give us license to do anything we want to do? Do we just relax and enjoy sin and we trust God for forgiveness? These questions are on the minds of many believers today, particularly when issues of morality are flooding our media. Uh, I've had people write me and ask me, why don't you do something to fix the the moral meltdown in America? And you know, as we study the New Testament, we need to understand the only fixing that we Christians can do is in our own personal lives. We can confess and repent of our own sin We can celebrate God's amazing grace that was given to us because we asked for it. And we can pray for those so caught in sin they feel no sorrow and no need to repent. And we can love sinners without loving their sin, just as Jesus loved us without loving our sin. And then we can point them to the Savior who is the only power in the world that can free them and help them to change. That's what we can do. I want us to realize as did the Pharisees finally in the book of Acts, that our moral indignation that's often associated with unloving judgmentalism never has enabled anyone to repent and turn to Jesus. I fail to understand Christians who have come under the grace of God being unable to give that to the people who need it most. Why are we so often associated with simply vile, judgmental castigation of human beings caught in sin when Jesus enfolded them in his arms and he wept over them. You see, only the Holy Spirit working in a person's heart can lead them to find Jesus and thus find the power to change. In fact, think about it in your own life. Isn't it your love for Jesus that energizes you to make any changes to become, quote, more holy? Simply, if fear doesn't do it, willpower doesn't do it, Let me illustrate how love does it. Last week, Carla Tucker was executed in Texas. And although she became a Christian during her 14 years of incarceration, no clemency was granted her. And as the media went into great detail about her dying by lethal injection, I I thought about why I love Jesus, and about why I want to become all that he calls me to be, why I want to obey, why I want to be holy. Because you see, according to the Bible, the wages of my sin is death. That's the wrath of God. And I believe in it with all my heart. And the wrath and the judgment of God against sin is as real as the justice in Texas was real in demanding the death of Carla Tucker. But our faith says Jesus was executed in our place. He was on the cross, or in this instance, he climbed on the table and took the injection for me. Why? Just because he loved us unconditionally. He didn't have to. And because he died, we don't have to. God's wrath against sin was poured on Jesus. And I suggest that once this truth sinks into our hearts, that he took our place as our Redeemer, as our Savior, we discover a love that's a power to help us become what Jesus calls us to be, that all the fear and the legalism and the uptight preaching could never accomplish. Brothers and sisters, Christianity is a journey, it's not instant sanctification. It's a journey to becoming like the one who died for us. We can't earn it, we can't achieve it, but through the Holy Spirit, it can be given to us even after countless detours and lapses because we're always going to have detours and we're always going to sin. But thank God we can continue to repent and find forgiveness. But over time, The Holy Spirit transplants the character of Jesus into us. That's our hope. In fact, the Bible says, someday when we're at the feet of Jesus, we will be like him. In the meantime, we have a journey. One writer states the role of the Holy Spirit this way If Jesus is nothing more than a teacher who gives us an impossible moral ideal that we cannot possibly attain, he's not a savior, he's a frustration. It's the Spirit who provides the character transplant of Jesus into our lives. It's when we're in despair about ever becoming what Jesus calls us to be, that we can come to him, admit our weakness, and then supernatural things begin to happen. That's why Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know they can't make it and they turn to God for mercy. We have to allow the Holy Spirit to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, or we'll fall into despair. That's part of the message of the book of Acts. I'm thankful the Council of Jerusalem decided there'd be no inner circle of super holy Christians in the church of Jesus. Our common awareness that we're all sinners in a common need for the grace that flows from the cross, that enables us to accept each other and to love each other in warts and all. You see, it's our awareness of our need for grace that leads us to pray for those caught in sin rather than judge them or wanna make them pay. God didn't make us pay, he made his son pay. We change our country by changing ourselves. Our country started downhill one person at a time and it'll be turned around one person at a time. You don't do it by principle preaching and making great pronouncements. We change by the Holy Spirit. And our church is gonna do our part by welcoming sinners because that's who all of us are. And sinners saved by God's amazing grace, a mystery we'll never understand. And the classic logo of our church will always be, this is a hospital for sinners, for anybody who wants to come here, not a house of saints, they'll have to go somewhere else. By grace alone, you see, our guilt is taken away. By grace alone, we're given a chance to start again and again and again, and by grace alone, we can be that merciful and compassionate to those still in bondage to unconfessed sin. Yes, guilt is a fact, it's not a fiction. But thanks be to God, His grace goes deeper than our most unspeakable sin. And that's our hope, and that's our source of joy. This morning, I thought we would do something for ourselves and for our country, and that is to act upon what this text invites us to do, and that is to come to God and to go to the well of grace again and confess our sins, and perhaps the sins of our nation, and ask God to have mercy. And the good news is he will. Let's take some quiet time and do business between ourselves and our Lord. Lord, thank you for the fact that you indeed are a redeemer and a savior. And thank you when we came to you like the prodigal, that you wrapped us in your arms. And then when we came again and again and again, you keep wrapping us in your arms. We don't understand that, but we can certainly praise you for it. Thank you we're saved by grace. Thank you that it's really true if we confess our sins, you are faithful and you are just, and you will forgive us our sins because of what Jesus did, and you'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, it's so good to know we'll never have those sins of the past brought up, but you'll take them as far away as the east is from the west. You'll bury them in the deepest sea. We don't have to live with guilt and memories of things we can't fix. Oh, God, what a gift. Through your Holy Spirit, help each one of us today to understand it and to accept it, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.